All right, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I want to begin by apologizing um, to you for the usual parking kerfuffle that is the UC San Diego campus. Um, but I appreciate so many of you having joined us this afternoon. Um, I am Brian Schottlander, the Audrey Geisel University Librarian here at UC San Diego. And on behalf of the university and the UC San Diego Library, I'm pleased to welcome you all to campus today. Um, this event represents our first collaboration with the Life Sciences Foundation from the Bay Area, and it is the first event of its kind to be held in San Diego. Now that may surprise you, um, I know, but it's true, nevertheless. I guess everyone has been so busy thinking and creating and inventing that they haven't really had much time to talk about what it is they've helped to create, much less to analyze it. So however true that may be, all of you here today know well that many people from many different walks of life have played a role in building in San Diego what is now widely recognized, and justly so, as one of the three largest biotech hubs in the nation. These include faculty and researchers, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, service providers, patent attorneys, and organizations like Biocom and Connect and the San Diego Venture Group that provide the tools the community needs to flourish. I wouldn't be surprised if a goodly number of you didn't associate the UC San Diego Library with the biotech industry. It might not be top of mind. But I must say that we in the library have a strong interest in documenting history, and in particular in documenting San Diego's history. And if I do say so myself, we're actually pretty good at it. Biotech in San Diego remains a phenomenon that is not yet well documented, much less studied and understood. So last year, we formally launched something called the San Diego Technology Archive, an initiative that seeks to document the history the development and the growth of the companies that make up San Diego's technology clusters. This is an online archive. It features a dynamic graphic representation of the genealogy of the companies that gave rise to the technology hub that is San Diego and of the cross-linkages between them. We started with our biggest cluster, the object of today's discussion, Biotech, and are now building out content in the telecom and software and information technology clusters as well. You can learn more about the archive by watching a short video that we'll have running out in the foyer during the reception. This afternoon, we have a great lineup for our program. I remarked earlier, it's like Woodstock. Um, Ivor Royston, Jim Blair, Kevin Kinsella, Tim Wallager. I, I really can't imagine a more stellar panel given the topic. And I thank all of you very busy gentlemen for taking the time to be with us this afternoon to share your knowledge and insights with us. I also want to thank our co-sponsors for their support, Biomed Realty, Connect, Cooley, Enterprise Partners Venture Capital, Morrison Forrester, and Shagru Mayon, along with our community partners, Biocom and the San Diego Venture Group. It's my pleasure now to welcome to the podium Heather Erickson, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Life Sciences Foundation and my collaborator for today's event. While the San Diego Technology Archive, as its name suggests, focuses on San Diego, the Life Sciences Foundation, under Heather's leadership, 
is dedicated to capturing the history, preserving the heritage, and sharing the stories of biotechnology nationwide. I'm very enthusiastic about our collaboration, and I'm very pleased to welcome Heather back to California. Heather. Thank you, Brian, and I feel like he's stolen my thunder and that you now know who I am and, and to some degree what it is we do. Uh, this is a real honor. It's a thrill to be back in California after uh, about a decade on the East Coast uh, working in the industry, uh, but also to lead such an august organization with such excellent uh, contributors and really for such a compelling mission. As uh, Brian mentioned, Life Sciences Foundation is a not-for-profit national heritage organization and we're really about not only capturing and preserving, which we can do in an excellent way through partnerships with organizations like the UC San Diego Archive, but in making sure that that story is actively told, and that's part of what we're here for today. We're delighted to be co-hosting this program and also to be extending the relationship that will benefit not only each of our organizations, but the entire San Diego community. The collection and organization of historical information uh, through that collection, the Life Sciences Foundation seeks to educate and inspire future innovators, to engage the general public in understanding the life sciences story, and to provide lay audiences with a robust understanding of how it's relevant to their daily lives. The history of biotechnology is being captured through oral histories, many of which we have done and will be doing in a greater extent in the future in collaboration with the university here through the development of our digital archives and extension of the digital archive project on campus. We're also sharing these stories via Facebook, a quarterly magazine, which there are copies of outside if you'd like to take one with you today, as well as a robust website that features more than 600 entries on a timeline dating from the 18th century through to today. Today's program is yet another way that we're striving to bring this story out to the broader community. The Life Sciences Foundation recognizes the importance not only of good science, but also the interplay of social, economic, political, and individual developments that make that an entire story. Today's panel will be focusing particularly on the financial aspect of bringing this industry into its own. There's an urgency to this mission, and if you don't know it, I can tell you that there are a lot of great people out there that have been doing this for an entire career, and we need to catch them while they're still available, while they're still interested, <laughs> and, and, frankly, <laughs> and frankly, while their materials are still at hand. You know, records are being largely scattered and destroyed, often through mergers and acquisitions, and that's part of what we're partnering to make sure is uh, preserved. That potential loss is, is really an institutional commitment that both the Life Sciences Foundation and the UC San Diego Archives are committed to, to combating. Many of the important lessons that we can learn are learned from that history. We can find inspiration in the struggles of the scientists and entrepreneurs, in the insight into the business decisions that led to both births and deaths of companies, and the perspective on the successes and failures that have come to define one of a truly American industry. Our esteemed panel will share some of their individual and collective lessons, and I encourage you to think up good questions because we're going to give you some time at the end to engage with them as a group. Um, but now it's my, my distinct pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's program, who's going to introduce the rest of the panelists, Ivor Royston. After co-founding Hybertech, <laughs> up. Co which is the first biotechnology company in San Diego, Ivor and his associates went on to form and invest in dozens of other biotechs, laying the foundation for one of the country's leading biotech hubs. He is an oncologist, 
a researcher, scientist, entrepreneur, and venture capitalist, not to mention a member of Life Sciences Foundation's Board of Directors and a great advisor. Please join me in welcoming Ivor Royston. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brian and, and, and Heather, uh, uh, for hosting this uh, very special occasion. And I'm particularly honored uh, to be asked to moderate this session uh, with this uh, esteemed panel that I greatly admire. Uh, I also um, want to thank all of you for being here uh, and joining us today, um, because we're going to go back uh, to the 80s, 1980s, a period of substantial growth of the biotech industry in San Diego with our panel. And it's most appropriate that we're holding this meeting in Atkinson Hall, named in honor of uh, President Emeritus Dick Atkinson, uh, former uh, president of the university and chancellor at UCSD, and he happens to be with us today. So for those of you who do not know uh, Dick Atkinson, Dick, could you raise your hand? He's sitting right here in the front row. When Dick Atkinson was appointed chancellor at UCSD in 1980, two years after I arrived here. Actually, I had met Dick, he'll remember, met Dick at Stanford at a coffee shop with a mutual friend, one of his postdocs. Little did I know that we would meet up again in San Diego. Um, so um, uh, when he came here, he brought with him uh, from Stanford the entrepreneurial experience and vision that he saw played out at Stanford and with the birth of Silicon Valley. And at UCSD, he immediately sought to use the Stanford-Terman model, Terman being the prior, uh, earlier dean of the engineering school that helped create Silicon Valley. And uh, he brought these ideas to San Diego, and uh, his idea was that UCSD would be a technology generator for the San Diego economy. He began to promote, uh, he began to promote the growth of high-tech startups and the raising of startup funds from the private sector. It was during his administration that uh, he supported and gave birth to the Connect organization, uh, which and connect which assists entrepreneurs uh, at every step of the way in starting new companies and uh, and virtually every region of the of this country now is trying to emulate connect and now I see we're very <laughs> I realize that we also have the connect founders here we have Mary Walshock sitting next to Dick Atkinson raise your hand Mary and we have David Hale over here and uh, this has been. Uh, They've been a tremendous organization in fostering the growth of the biotech life science industry in San Diego. So I feel like we're all ha here, like one happy family, so to speak. Um, anyway, moving right along. The 80s and 90s were decades of substantial growth of, this, of, of the life science industry here. And, and biotechnology was actively supported by the venture capital industry, the venture capital community. And as a result of all of this, uh, San Diego has emerged as one of the top three biotech clusters in the world today. And as you heard from uh, Heather and from Brian, uh, but uh, be, uh, the organization, these organizations have been formed, uh, well, the Life Science Foundation has been formed to record and preserve accurately uh, the history of the biotechnology industry. And as part of this endeavor, both uh, LSF and UCSD have brought together three of the mo most, the legendary venture capitalists who were active at the beginning uh, of, this, uh, of this era in the 80s in San Diego, nearly 30 years ago. And they, and they have created some of the most successful companies in the United States today. Not only that, their venture capital partnerships have been the most, some of the most successful venture capital partnerships in the history of life science investing. 
All three of these individuals remain active today and continue to fund and develop life science companies and are in the unique position to, commu to comment on how things were done back then and how the world has changed over the past nearly 30 years. I think it's important to talk about the past so that we have a perspective on what attributes and conditions are vital to the success of venture capital-backed life science companies and venture capital investing in general as we go, as we move uh, into the future. So for the next 15 minutes, we're going to uh, go back nearly 30 years ago and talk about what it was back then uh, that these gentlemen did. Um, these gentlemen have, as I said, a unique perspective on the past, they, they, and, uh, and they will talk about how, how they funded and created and developed some of, the, of these uh, companies uh, that uh, have become very successful, and I hope they'll comment on how the climate back then and their own contributions led to this success. After that, we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the present climate for funding life science uh, companies and also what's in store for the future. Our panelists, as you heard, are Jim Blair, founding partner of Domain Associates, Kevin Kinsella, founding partner of Avalon Ventures, and Tim Walliger, founding partner of BioVest Ventures, and more recently a partner in Sandling Ventures. Together, these gentlemen have been involved with the creation and financing and development of over 150 life science companies in the United States. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask each of them to talk about one of their, one of their uh, favorite companies, that, the, the successful companies. Uh, not everyone. And we all know that venture capitalists have unsuccessful companies, but the successful companies. We're going to start with Jim Blair. And I've asked Jim to talk about the creation of Dura, uh, Dura Pharmaceuticals. Um, how he did it back then, and the reason I, one of the reasons I asked Jim to do to talk about Dura, he might have chosen that on his own, I suppose, was first of all it was very successful. There, the company eventually grew to a thousand employees, and it was sold in 2000 to Elan for over 1.7 billion dollars. But for many years, I've heard people tell me that Dura could not have been successful without without Jim Blair and Jim Blair's contribution. I never understood why, and now today. I'm hoping that I am going to find out why. Jim, I want to talk about your... Okay. I have a very good PR agent I think that's, that, uh, that helped us do that. But uh, I, I would correct you at one point as we sold it for $2.9 billion, not one point. What's a billion here or there? 1.7 was your, was your part, right? 1.7 is what you took home. <laughs> bill here, a bill where I got my money. What's a billion? So, you know, right. But... Uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, the foray into Dura was actually uh, uh, rather circuitous uh, in the sense that uh, uh, I had worked in the high-tech sector uh, originally, and then I, uh, I went to work for a venture firm that was affiliated with the Rothschild family. And the chairman of the Rothschild family was a fellow by the name of Victor Rothschild that started a, a fund called Biotechnology Investments Limited. Uh, that uh, started its activity in 1981. And we made some good early investments in that fund. Uh, uh, Amgen, for example, was one of them, Applied Biosystems. And so we got off to kind of a good early start. And, and uh, I was doing tech investing at the same time as I was doing uh, life science investing and decided that uh, this was a pretty exciting area and worthy of some concentration. And so uh, by 1984-85, I decided we were going to spin out and start the firm that I'm uh, founder of Domain Associates, 
uh, and we're going to concentrate uh, uh, our resources uh, within the firm on helping these uh, emerging companies uh, uh, in the biotech sector uh, develop fully. I worked for a great guy at uh, Rothschild by the name of Charlie Lay, and at the time we invested in Amgen, we were highly impressed with George Rathman uh, because of his uh, business acumen. He was a scientist, but uh, he had run the diagnostics business for Abbott and built it up quite successfully. And so when he came and pitched to us, we thought he was a pretty good guy to entrust uh, uh, our share of $18 million, uh, which was the startup uh, financing amount for the company. And we put the dough in, and we, uh, uh, in the process of doing that, uh, uh, Charlie made the comment that the problem with the biotech industry was there was phenomenal science, but not very good management, and that uh, there was going to be a, a floodgate of people that were learning how to manage these businesses for probably the first uh, five or ten years, and that time you would be able to see the businesses that you were working with with some pretty good people. And so uh, after we'd started uh, 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 Domain in 1985, uh, probably about half a year or two later, uh, I got a phone call at, uh, to come out and take a look at a company that was a real interesting company called ImmuneTech uh, that was engaged in the development uh, and late stage development, I might add, uh, of products for the uh, allergy uh, and uh, asthma space. And they had a product that was literally had gone through phase three testing of the, uh, of the molecule and was kind of hung up at the FDA who wanted them to do some more trials and the idea was we'd do one more trial, we'll get that done and the product would be ready for market and the science checked out and was pretty interesting, very safe molecules, they were peptide based. And so uh, when it came out to get involved in it, it was in, had some financial difficulties to raise enough money to do this. And I convinced the folks that we should go forward, but it was my first foray into San Diego. And it was very clear uh, upon arrival that uh, it needed a, uh, a new management structure there uh, to basically kind of carry it the rest of the way. Uh, I met David Hale for the first time and uh, tried to talk him into coming and running the company. And he said, uh, I won't do that, but I'll go on the board and, and, and help you find some uh, some interesting people. And it was at that point in time that you started to realize that uh, what Charlie Lay had taught me about uh, the, uh, uh, the good businesses that had been created spawning uh, tremendous managerial resources. And at that time, Hybertech was uh, uh, just uh, close to the point of being acquired and the, the management exodus from uh, Hybertech started to populate the, uh, the local community here. And I, I think back on it, and if you think historically on why this uh, industry and this hub became so dynamic, you'd have to go back to the creation of Hybertech uh, that uh, created the uh, Tim Walgers of this world, the David Hales of this world, uh, the Cam Garners of this world, uh, and uh, I, I probably left out a few, Ivor Royston, I, uh, I think. But, you know, overall, uh, got involved in, in working ImmuneTech, and after about three or four years of that, uh, it was an allergy product uh, that we were waiting for the approval of. We're still waiting for approval of it, but we decided we'd better create a marketing organization or start thinking about that. And we acquired a small local company called Dura Pharmaceuticals that was about $3 million in sales. And we were able to finance that uh, with about the last equity anybody was willing to put into immune tech. And, uh, uh, that took off. We uh, uh, basically uh, had brought Cam Garner into uh, essentially grab a hold of the business and, and, and run the commercial side of it. Uh, he rapidly uh, brought in uh, some, some terrific uh, 
sales and marketing people. We built that up. Uh, we sustained the research operations for about a year after that uh, started to take off. Uh, paired those off and sold it to Tanabe, and the business uh, went from three million to about 300 million in revenues in about an eight-year period of time. Uh, a good accomplishment that resulted in the trade sale that, uh, uh, to Elan that uh, was referenced uh, by Ivor. So that's how I got here. I know some others want to talk too, but uh, there right. you go. Uh, Jim, the, um, <clears throat> was there ever a period of time where things were looked pretty, pretty shaky, where, uh, where you weren't sure whether it was going to make it? And uh, my partners thought so. Uh, we had committed 15% uh, of our first uh, fund, Domain One. We had a $40 million fund. We had six, six and a half million of that, and then we had about uh, another uh, uh, four or five million from our uh, friends uh, with the Biotechnology Investments Limited. And uh, uh, those were shaky times, uh, you know, because we we were uncertain of it. But as soon as we made the decisions to uh, to basically build up the commercial business and had a lot of confidence in the uh, execution capabilities of people like Cam and others mm -hmm. and leadership from, uh, from a, a good board of directors that we'd put together. Uh, um, it was pretty relaxing after that. But we had some tough decisions in the early days. Well, I'm sure, to, uh, uh, I, I'm sure Jim is a very modest person, but uh, because uh, people, have, as I said, people have told me that uh, Jim was instrumental in in the support in his support his support was instrumental in in keeping uh, 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 Dura funded and, and leading to the success that it had. So thank you, thank you, Jim. Let's move on to um, Kevin, who's going to talk about one of the most successful companies in the United States today, which is Vertex. I think I've got the market cap right, Kevin. Ten billion dollars. Yep, uh, one of the leaders in. Development of uh, hepatitis C drugs and other uh, agents as well. I think it has over 1,800 employees and is a very dominant company in the industry. Tell us, it was also a book written years ago about about the creation of Vertex. I Kevin, brought it. Us, <laughs> <laughs> okay. The billion dollar molecule. Billion dollar molecule. And Have you read it, Chad? Oh yeah. <laughs> so Kevin, out. tell us about. I just looked up my name. <laughs> so you've read two pages? Right. No, 14, actually. Oh, okay. okay. Right. I think I, had a, I think I bought a copy of that book a long time ago. It's a rough crowd here. Tell us about the creation of um, Vertex and what, did, and what yeah. did you do to, what was your contribution in all of that? Good. I, I thought the, uh, the audience might be interested in the sort of the modus operandi back in the day. Um, and this is the, what I refer to as the golden age of, of biotech investing when you could start a company around an idea that you had from seeing a cover story in Newsweek or something, <laughs> and uh, you would run around and you'd find out the best people in the world who could constitute a science advisory board, then you would pull them together and give them <clears throat> 100,000 shares of stock each, and you would go and find a VP of R&D, someone who not long ago had been in academia, but maybe had had one stint through um, a technology or biotechnology company. Um, you'd try to Shanghai a CEO, but that wasn't necessary from the beginning. You'd round up a group of confer investors like Domain or IVP or Kleiner Perkins and so forth. Uh, you'd put a couple million dollars in. Um, a year later, after you'd plugged in all the equipment, you'd get a courtesy markup of a 2x. Uh, and uh, then uh, you'd put together a couple of partnerships with pharma. Uh, back in the day when they paid for everything, you'd get a decent down payment. You'd get them to pay for all the FTEs. you get early milestones and so forth. 
And once you had three of those in the bag, you know, you would go to one of the investment banks, whether the white shoe ones or the specialized ones like Hamburg and Quist or Robbie Stevens, and you could go public. And as I like to brag, in, in the golden age, you, you know, after putting in a few million dollars and waiting a couple of years, you could get anywhere from a, you know, a 10x to 100x on your money, and your molecule, if you even had a molecule, had never even seen the inside of a rodent. I mean, <laughs> those were the days, my friends. <laughs> so that was the environment that we operated in, kind of swashbuckling and so forth. And those were back in the days when I was a young Turk. Um, anyway, so often you would start companies around what today would be buzzword ideas, whether it happened to be in the case of Vertex, rational drug design uh, or uh, signal transduction, which was area that came closely after that, or genomics or ultra-high throughput screening or uh, combinatorial chemistry. There was always a great buzzword that was you know, in the literature, and if you could you know, sort of dominate the discussion there, put together the A-list company, you were sort of off and running. So Vertex was the um, arguable, well, it was probably the second rational drug design company because um, there was one that got started in San Diego, which was um, Agaron. Yeah. Um, started by Peter Johnson, right? Who mm -hmm. whose qualification was that he was a successful real estate investor. Um, anyway, not that any of us had great long track records of doing anything. So. Um, uh, I went around uh, after deciding I wanted to do this, and I uh, lined up an advisory board of some some of the great <coughs> people in the field, Don Wiley, Martin Karplus, uh, Stuart Schreiber, and so forth. Uh, and um, there was a senior medicinal chemist at Merck by the name of Joshua Boger uh, that I got to know. I remember meeting him for the first time, taking the train down from New York to Rahway. He slipped away for lunch. Uh, met me, uh, and we had a pleasant lunch at TG Friday's or something. Uh, and um, he sort of liked the idea of breaking out of Merck, um, becoming an entrepreneur, entrepreneur and getting involved in starting this company. So we did that and uh, put together, I think, an eminent uh, group of, uh, of venture capitalists to, to invest in it, Greylock Partners and um, uh, J.H. Whitney out of New York, Benno Schmidt, um, lots of stories. I, I heard from Benno, who was a Lyndon Johnson era, you know, venture capitalist, uh, the, fa the father of the of the guy uh, Benno Schmidt Jr. Later became president of Yale, um, and so the the company got you know off and running, uh, and we it was started in '89. We went public, I think, in '91, uh, and. Uh, the company has been kind of on a on a roll uh, pretty much since that time. What what's the difference today uh, is um, because I think the question will come up from Ivor later. Would could you finance Vertex today? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, and the reason is that what I'll call the funding gap. Back in those days, with probably less than ten million, significantly less than ten million from venture capitalists through maybe two rounds, and then you would put some partnerships together. Um, and then you could go public and you could access the capital markets. Uh, because if you look at Vertex, um, notwithstanding its success today and some of the innovative drugs it's brought to market and its $10 billion market cap and so on, 
The fact is it took 15 years uh, or, or more for the company to be uh, break even and then profitable. Um, the aggregate amount of money that was invested in that company from all sources had to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and, uh, and finally, you know, uh, some of its products, you know, took off. It was one of the early developers of, it was probably the second protease inhibitor for, for AIDS, but that was a relatively small product, you know, later compared to now that, you know, sort of the hep C product, I think, is, uh, has really taken off in sales, and it does over a billion dollars worth of sales. But you just do not have the capital, number one, uh, to be able to do that, because the public markets basically don't exist at early stages for um, for venture capital-backed companies, because no one is willing to, um, you know, basically live with an investment that long, um, and there's not a grand pool of people willing to, you know, take you out of the investment, carry it for a while, hoping that'll go up, passing it on to someone else. Uh, so if you don't have predictable revenues and, and earnings, you're, you're just not really a candidate to, to go public. Um, so that's a, a major change uh, in our environment today um, because that, that IPO early uh, option that not only gave venture capitalists a tremendous liquidity and early, but it also provided um, access to huge amounts of capital at very reasonable prices to the companies. Um, uh, so anyway, I don't so want we'll to... come back to that. You'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that, and because I want to stick to the past, and then we'll move uh, to the present uh, shortly. So while, while we're still on the past, let me give uh, uh, Tim uh, uh, an opportunity to talk about his past, <laughs> and especially a very unique situation when uh, he created a company called Pixis under, I think, unusual circumstances, but I'll let him talk about it. Pixis, I know, you, I hope I got the billions right. I, I have it down for one billion. Is it, okay. That's correct. Okay. So you're the small fry in the group here, I guess. Uh, you, uh, you sold it to Cardinal Health in 1996 for one billion dollars. But uh, Tim, tell us how that company got started. I know you were very instrumental in creating that company. Okay. I'm used to going last. I usually sat in school next to Donald Zellin. That's why you're... <laughs> but uh, uh, it's funny. When you hear the other stories, there are all so many connections between all of us. The only person I look out in the audience that has ever been my boss though is Mary Wall. When, <laughs> when I taught a class here at the university. But uh, anyway, when uh, I had the distinction, and I'll, I will get to pictures immediately, uh, <laughs> after we sold Hypertech to Eli Lilly, I hold the distinction as the first person they terminated. Um, and, and I got to go down the hall and terminate Ted Green and, uh, as part of my severance package. And so uh, Ted and I started BioVest with a huge sum of uh, $5 million, most of it given to us by two of our largest investors in HyberTech. Uh, so the first thing that I did is I set out, uh, had a meeting with, this was uh, early 87, had a meeting with somebody that had called me with an idea. It happened to be in a conference room at what was then Arthur Young, and went through the meeting, didn't like this idea the person gave me, and as I went to thank Arthur Young for letting me use their office, uh, the partner said to me, I, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. Um, I know this um, won't be sophisticated enough for you, but we have a my neighbor's daughter is working here, you know, like a file clerk at the time. And the reason she's here is she is both a nurse and is getting to take her final vows as a nun. 
and she's having some emotional conflicts. And um, would, would you be willing to spend 10 minutes with her and give her a pat on the back and some encouragement? I said, sure. So uh, Carol McLaughlin, or as I call her sister Carol, no, I don't. So Carol McLaughlin came in, and she told me that that in uh, the hospital, the narcotics were very loosely controlled. And at the end of the shift, they sort of had to make up the records about, well, there are three morphines. We can't figure out where they went. So they said, well, one went to him, one to him, and they write it down, all this stuff. And then there'd be a sort of a snickering as to who was a drug addict amongst the nurses. And that this was what was conflicting her nursing and religious points of view. So she brought in with her a a uh, box that I also, I try to say, make sure, I sometimes say her fa she and her father made, and I say, mean the priest? I said, no, her dad. She and her dad made this box made out of plexiglass and plywood and had a lazy Susan in it from the kitchen table. And the point was that they were gonna put the drugs in here and you'd have to access it like an ATM to get the drugs. So um, normally, you know, today you'd have hired a, uh, a consultant who would have called 12 hospital pharmacist to see whether this was of interest. And of course, the answer would have been no. Uh, but I reckon back to a story that I'd heard that in 1902, Alexander Graham Bell showed Teddy Roosevelt the telephone. And Roosevelt's response was, this is so terrific. I will bet you by the end of the 20th century, there'll be one of these in every major city in the United States. <laughs> so I decided that the, my due diligence would be, I said, do you still have privileges at your hospital? She said, yes. So we went to the hospital the next day. And I was so caught up by her emotion. I mean, she was so sincerely interested in this. So we went to the pharmacy warehouse, then to the pharmacy, then up on the floor. And if you had hired actors to do bad things in front of me, you could not have seen more than I saw. Um, so I got to the end of my four-hour stay in the hospital and said, uh, Carol, I said, I'm not sure you have a solution, but you have revealed a problem to me. And so I said, what about this for a deal? I would give, put up $500,000 for 51% of the company. They had filed a patent. You can give me the patent. And I said, I want to name the company Pixis. Based on my technical background in the history of art class, I knew a Pixis was a Greek vase user holding medicinals. And I thought it sounded high tech. So I named the company. I had my brother-in-law draw a logo. If you look at it on the picture out here, it looks like a little nun looking down. With, I believe he's just with the, um, And I said, but I need to run this by my partner, Ted Green. So I got back to the office and told Ted about it. And Ted's response was, well, this will never be that big, but at least it will be a little faster to market than most of these biotech ideas. So it fits into the medical, let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> so the next step was Ron Taylor uh, was asked to leave uh, the Hypertech Lilly situation. He came to me and needed a job. In my experience at Hypertech, Ron had done more for less money than most of the people I dealt with. And he had been both the head of operations and then branched out in international marketing uh, so he agreed to take the job and build the team. Now, just some of the, I thought like some of the major events in this is uh, we did put another $500,000 into it, and I did get one of the big Bay Area funds, which I won't name for the later story, uh, to go ahead and put another million dollars in this. Later on, when we went to raise the next round, 
uh, we'd gone a dollar a share, dollar and a quarter, a dollar fifty a share. They said we don't need the money till a month from now. Let's do it the next board meeting. So at the next board meeting, they said we want to put four million dollars in, but at ten cents a share, and we don't need you on the board anymore. The guy who was delivering this to me had played college football, but for some reason I got across the table and had him pinned against a wall. Before I, honestly, God, do not know how I got there, but I survived it. And uh, we had a call, Mr. Hillman, our limited partner, who gave us another million dollars to keep our, ourselves from being crushed in this thing. The next time we were running out of money, uh, and, and I can tell you right now, we went into hospitals with this. Nurses said, I don't want a computer. I'm a caregiver. Pharmacists said, oh, no, we have a pretty good manual system here. Uh, and, the, and the management said, why would I spend money on something like this when I already have a gym locker with a padlock on it and give the key to the meanest nurse? <laughs> so, so we were really doing well. Um, then I got a call from a, a, a venture capitalist on the East Coast, not Jim, that said he had heard about this and was interested and would he, would I be able to show it to him someplace. So I was traveling to t Dallas, so I met him at the Dallas airport. I think we had 12 units in the in the world at this time out there, and I took him to a, I had a, you know, check with the company, where is it, on what floor, what hospital. So I met him at the airport. We drive drive to this hospital in Dallas. I hope I don't get teary doing this story. I, do, I sometimes do. Um, <laughs> so we're walking down the floor of the hospital. And I spot the pictures. You know, there's this nurse coming toward me. And I say, excuse me, ma'am, can you tell me what this is? And she said, this is my pictures unit. And she said, this is the most wonderful thing that has happened to me in my nursing career. And if I had a choice between giving up my firstborn or my Pixis unit, <laughs> it'd be a close call. <laughs> so I kind of went, well, can you show me how it works? And she goes over and it was, you know, touch the screen up on the screen, come to the patient, touch the patient, come up with what the patient's been prescribed, touch that and dispense that and updated the medical records and the billing. So we're walking out of the hospital, and uh, this guy says to me, Tim, don't pull some sort of stunt like this. <laughs> and I said, John, I have never been in this hospital before. I have never seen this nurse before. And he said, how about $5 million? <laughs> So that was a big financial break for us. And then the next really interesting break for us is we were at a hospital one day trying to talk to a nurse about something, and she said, I can't talk to you now. My shift is coming off, and I have the duty to count the pills today. And we went, what? And they said, oh, yeah, every time the shift changes, you have a person from the ongoing shift and the offgoing shift that count the pills. So we did a quick study and figured out it was costing about $1,000 a month per nursing station to count the pills in overtime pay. And then we went to four states and got approval that, that the Pixis machine was a perpetual inventory machine and you didn't have to count the pills at the end of the shift. So now we went to hospitals and say, would you believe this is costing you $1,000 a month to count pills? They said, yes. And we said, what if you, we rent you a machine for $500? You, you make $500, we make $500, and everybody's great. And, and we started putting it out there. And we ended up getting a nice lease line and started putting these things in and saying, use it for two months. If you don't like it, we'll take it out. If you do like it, We'll take it back, but you've, I mean, you've got to then keep it for 48 months. But one of the most wonderful moments for me is I was involved in a hospital management company, and we got hit by Hurricane Andrew, which must have made it 92, and I forced two machines in there. 
And I go down there and, uh, to give this award to this guy who knocked out all the toilets in the first and second floor of the hospital, putting drains on the floor if there's a hurricane. Remember that someday if you need it. And I'm handing, giving this guy an award for doing this. And the guy, CEO, looks at me and says, aren't you the Pixis guy? And I went, well, I'm involved in a number of things. And he said, boy, did you create a problem for me? My little heart sank. And I said, what, well, what happened? And he said, well, uh, two days ago, I went to rotate the nurses so they don't always work in the same area. And I walked out of my office, and all my off-duty nurses were sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of my office going, Pixis, Pixis, Pixis. <laughs> and he said, they wouldn't go back to work. Uh, they wouldn't rotate off the Pixis floor. And he said, I don't even know what the goddamn things are, but I just ordered 53 more of them. And it was, it was, you know, in the book, The Tipping Point, this was the tipping point. From that day forward, we couldn't make them fast enough. The nurses became our product development people saying, could you do one that would do this? Could you do one that would do this? Could you do one that would do this? And one of the other sort of momentum things was one day I was also at another hospital I was involved in, and we, I was, we were trying to decide whether to spend a million dollars on a lot for offices across the street from the hospital. And some young guy in the meeting, why he was there, I don't know, said, um, why don't we just build the offices in the, where, in the pharmacy warehouse, in the warehouse space? And the CEO said, you know, good idea. We'll just put all the inventory out on the sidewalk and put a tarp over it. And he said, <laughs> and he said no, you don't understand my job. He said, 95% of what we use, including blankets and pillows, are in Pixis units. I sit in the warehouse, I watch the four computer screens, and when we're low on urinary catheters on 4 East, I say, Ivor, get a grocery car, go up to 4 East and put urinary catheters in. And he said, why don't we just have our vendors tap into this and have them come to the hospitals and fill the Pixis units? And if we really want to be gutsy, don't even pay for the products until the nurses actually remove it and use it. And I went, oh my God, can I leave the room? Yeah. And we came back and put together a, a, a program called Pixize Your Hospital in this spread. And we were doing real nicely. And so we hired bankers to go out and say, uh, we need to hire by a distributor. So we're gonna have Pixis trucks driving around doing this. And we were meeting with the people from Cardinal Health outside Columbus, Ohio. And, the head of Cardinal said, oh, you guys are entrepreneurs. You don't want to do this. He said, we'll give you a billion for it and put our trucks there. We yeah. kind of, let's, let me think about it for a minute. <laughs> okay, we got it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. And we got about a 70 times return on that. that that's, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And there's yeah. some very, very, yeah. very historical there. Very unique. Now, uh, you both, you, both you guys, I'm sure it's true for you too, Jim, uh, you know, describe a period of time where people were really you know, you guys as venture capitalists are very entrepreneurial, freewheeling, used, went according to your gut reaction. I mean, even when we started Hypertech, I remember with Tom Perkins, it was his gut reaction that said, hey, uh, you know, this is pretty neat stuff you guys are doing. I'll give you a couple hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I asked for a couple hundred, so I'll give you 300. Remember yeah. this first. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that doesn't happen today very much. I, I'm a venture capitalist now. I've joined the ranks. I have to write a 10-page deal memo you know, looking at the markets and, and doing due diligence, calling pharmaceutical executives and all this kind of stuff. We can't, we can't do investments uh, the way we did them before. Is that true? Or maybe it's not true that, for you. It's well. not true what for us. My, my, one of my Boston partners has a great quip. He says, 
Due diligence is what you do when you don't want to do a deal. Right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. He, so he, we, he ascribed we, that to Zynga. He, I told him to mention the word Zynga. <laughs> no, but it, it, I mean, a lot of stuff I do in my private life is all based on gut feel. Right. Uh, and you, I, I mean, it, at least not many good things come with age, but one of them is you get a good template matching uh, and quick uh, ability to say, does this sound like a good idea? Can I, can I see this through to a liquidity event and so forth? Sort of, you know, the pro or con. Sort of like Eisenhower saying, he didn't think a land war in Asia was a good idea, so he wasn't <laughs> going to bail out the French and Jim Van uh, Anyway, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. But we, your we, fund is, you've had a lot of successful funds. Your funds tend to be, have in the past, tend to be a little bit smaller than some of the others. So are you able to continue that kind of... Uh, you know, operations. We are because yeah. we like to so you you know, can give that. give people a, what enough about domain, much larger. Well, domain, you have much larger funds. We, we do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer is, uh, you know, with a five hundred million dollar fund, you can't you can't take five hundred million and say we're going to you know be entrepreneurial with it. But we yeah. have created. You know, we have a. I guess we describe it as a, um, uh, if you would, a company creation activity within our firm, and and, and you know Eckhart Weber and, and uh, Debbie Liebert, who's working closely with him. Uh, their whole mission is to to create companies from whole cloth, to, to be essentially uh, the uh, sort of the entrepreneur in charge, if you would, and and uh, you know Rexigen, a local company. Their products are based on inventions that Eckhart made uh, with with a couple of other people. So. Uh, you know, you could call us entrepreneurial. We started that in, in about the year 2000. Okay, we're going to continue to do it. We think it's one of the best activities we have ongoing. Uh, we more recently uh, uh, invested in a company uh, that is in the CTC space, uh, Epic Sciences, that's a, out of Scripps. Uh, we seeded that about two and a half, three years ago, Kim Kamdar's uh, pet project, and uh, uh, we're highly enthusiastic about, about that. So we're still seeding things at an early stage. We're still allocating partnership time, but it's not 100% of what domain does. And right. uh, you know, just to, to that end, uh, the industry has become very institutionalized in terms of sources of capital. Uh, and if you go back to the decisions that Kleiner Perkins made with uh, uh, Hybertech and Tandem Computers and a variety of the companies that we tend to, uh, 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 obviously, uh, Genentech, uh, they had about four limited partners. They had Stanford and they had the Hillmans essentially pushing not too much money at them, and they did very well by that. And uh, and, and and BioVest, which has got to be the most successful uh, venture partnership ever created with you and Ted, uh, that's $5 million that came from, what, Henry Hillman and, and a little bit from Stanford? Uh, not from Sutter, Stanford. Hill yeah, Sutter Hill Ventures. Sutter Hill Ventures, right? And uh, so you, you had... Two people basically said, "Boy, we got some horses. We're going to ride them," and and they did. But you you can't scale that. Uh, in fact, I think one of the great stories is uh, uh, Stanford came back and said, "We'll give you a fifty million," and you guys said, "No, we're not. You can't do it." I don't. That's a exactly. story. Story. <laughs> in, in, in there are multiple reasons. Yeah. But, Let's but, just yeah. talk about uh, Kevin has uh, touched on some of the things that have changed already over the past thirty years. He's talked about. The, uh, the absence of the IPO market. But uh, let's talk about what, other, what else is going on. Uh, there's been, I mean, I'm in the business. There have been substantial changes in the venture business and funding life science companies over the past 30 years. Uh, uh, it is extremely challenging today, I think, for the most part. Uh, can you elucidate a little bit more? What are some of the, uh, Tim, what are some of the other 
things uh, besides the IPO market vanishing. The IPO, the, the public used to finance our, 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 our companies uh, and take them to, and, and we'd achieve liquidity. They were, they were, really, they were willing to bet on, 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 on our ideas, but after a while when they saw that they weren't making any, as an index, they weren't really making much money compared to treasuries, uh, I think they backed out. And the public doesn't finance hope and promise anymore like they used to. So what else is though? What else has changed, Tim? Well, I think you know, the, with the IPO going away, I think that uh, one of the things that that when when Ted Green left Hybertech, he wrote a memo at their request to Eli Lilly, where what he said is that the pharmaceutical companies will follow the path of the oil companies, that the biotechs will become the wildcatters to find the oil, and the pharmaceutical companies will be left owning the pipelines, the refineries, and the gas stations. And I think that's somewhat coming true. I mean, you find today that some of the big pharmaceutical companies you know, are shutting down campuses where they had 3,500 people doing R&D instead are saying, we could take that money and be, we'd be better off buying the biotech companies as they develop because they're so much more productive. So I think that's one of the things. Now, um, the, one of the complexities for the venture industry in that is that most of these deals are structured deals where they, let, you know, let's say you know, the company's invested $50 million to get to some like phase three clinical trials and then a big pharmaceutical come along and say, okay, we'll give you uh, $30 million up front and another $500 million when revenues on the first product cumulatively in Europe hit a billion dollars. You know, and you kind of go, well, okay, let's do that. And so you sort of lose control of it. Plus it extends the time. Kevin was asking me about my current uh, firm that I'm with, Sanderling, which is a Bay Area fund, and how old some of the funds are. And I, and I know some of your funds you know, are getting, uh, you know, have been pretty long around and it's because you're sitting there waiting for all this stuff and it, and it's just hard to tell your your limited partners um, here's an escrow company that we hired and if that money ever gets paid out when revenues start rolling in from Europe I'm sure they'll find you and get your money paid. I mean well it but it's but work. it's it's worse than that it's impossible to do that yeah and in, and in fact uh, two-thirds of life science venture companies have gone out of business because they don't have the returns it's very simple and the reason they don't have the returns is, and, and I will say there's a silver lining in this, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute, but the fact is what, what Tim is referring to is the typical situation where you've invested a lot of time and money in a company, and a pharma company turns up and says, hey, guess what, we'll, we'll give you your money back in the upfront. And, and bear in mind, this is just on your successes, on your failures, because you eat, eat that completely. So on your successes, you get your money back. Well, how many people, I mean, I think anyone in the room, the least sophisticated person, that after five years getting your money back and everything on the come on the back end is not a way to make money, nor is it a way to impress anybody, particularly a limited partner. And therefore, um, these what I call predatory taxes, and I know it's predatory because in several situations that, that later got competitive so that we, we got some very nice returns out of it. But the, uh, instead of spending time in, uh, you know, in the data room doing due diligence, the pharmaceutical partner basically wanted to go over the cap table you know, with yes. calipers. 
why? <laughs> well, because they wanted to figure out how much was getting your money back going to be. Yeah, the and then they would make that you know, offer to you. And if there's no competition and you were a venture firm long invested in it, you're, you know, with, with no alternative, you're like, likely to take it. But that's not a return you can go and raise another fund on. Mm-hmm. So all the pharmaceutical companies have now colluded to operating this way. They all want us to share the, share the risk with them. But we don't have, we have 10, 10-year funds. Uh, what are we supposed to do? Create 15-year funds or 20-year funds? That doesn't make sense. So um, is the venture capital model then broken right now, Jim? Or not? Well, it is certainly in our sector, uh, you know, it, it's loaded with that. I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, you, you sit there and say, uh, you, you know, we can, I could join in with the railing, if you would, about what's going on. And I could argue that some of the structured deals, if you, if you work them right, which requires competition for the deal, uh, aren't all that. It's no, if the public market isn't there, you used to take companies public and distribute 20 or 30 percent of it over three or four years as you had different milestones and you were handing out bigger wads of cash, that's essentially a milestone deal if it's done well. Uh, and so you just have to structure it so you're not waiting for the billion dollar in sales in, in Europe that you described and, and you basic. And we've had a couple that, uh, uh, that, that we've gotten nice paydays from and actually I think our, our returns from the structured deals, I think we've gotten paydays from about 80 percent of them. But, uh, that basically have at least kept us on the track. And what percent are lost? And you have lawsuits with those pharmaceutical companies. I'm just curious. Um, or a few, a few, but not. Uh, yeah, you know, no, it's. Yeah. And I would say we've had some yeah. deals that have worked out nicely in this. Exactly. But it's it's the it's, you got to get the competition. It's the competition tough. for the deal is. Yeah, that's the only thing that. Right. And and the bankers, you know, pardon me if there's a lot of bankers in the audience. They basically are talking to these guys, and, and they're not pushing back. They're not fighting hard. They're they're not doing it. And so, uh, you know, we're starting that process of getting ready for those types of offers. We're having to do that a year before you know basically the the, the crisis hits yeah. and figure out okay, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna get the competition going? Well, I think so, one of these are tactics that basically deal with a situation that uh, that that is not yeah. good. Tech has essentially wiped out. The biggest single problem this country faces is the rising cost of health care. We get no leadership at the, at the national level standing up and saying, if we're going to fight this problem, okay, we're going to have to invest in technology. Congress basically makes their spending decisions on a, if I can save a dollar here, okay, then I can spend a dollar over there. But you, it, the, the statistic that blew my mind was the fact that the total investment that the federal government made in AIDS research was $10 billion, okay? The cost to our society today to maintain the AIDS patients if we hadn't intervened at that level, $1 trillion a year, okay? So you have to start thinking about your expenditure in our sector as an investment, not as a, you know, a dollar that has to be traded off with uh, either new tax revenues or something different. And that's the 100% of the thought process about how you basically balance the budget down there. Hey, you sound like a Democrat. Another thing, that, <laughs> another thing that happened that um, I don't know whether the a big... concerned citizen. <laughs> I don't know if the big banks looked at this as opportunities or as ways to get rid of them, but in our early days, and you've mentioned Hamburg and Quist and Roberts and Stevens, and I get, you know, there's some others in there too. And it used to be different. They, those people used to... Um, browse the neighborhoods here, looking for things, trying to get you moving along. And then they all got bought up by the, the really big people and killed. 
Right. And it wasn't like, you know, they said, well, we're going to buy Robertson Stevens and now we're going to start doing small companies. So today, if you want to, you know, you, you would not walk into your company today and say, oh, there's some guys here from Goldman Sachs just browsing the neighborhood trying to find out what's going on. You got to call them and go out there and do dog and pony. So um, that's one of the things that happened. And one of the things that, that I would throw out in an audience, I'm not sure this is the right audience, uh, but in terms of age, but I mean, I think the thing that's, that's, that's interesting is all of us got going in venture capital in the mid 80s, right? And, and you know, and I've got, had companies that have sold for a lot of money and, and just like we had, you know, Hybertech and did you see those people say, hey, now what I'm gonna do is raise a venture fund? No. And then you sort of say, well, what happened to the people who left Donaldson, Lufkin, Generette? Did they start a new boutique bank to sort of look for things? No. Uh, I don't. I don't know where they all are. Oh, they uh, went to work for the pharmaceutical companies, huh? Because <laughs> they they went. Their deal was look, you know, we we were at Lehman Brothers or you know H and Q or whatever. We don't have a job, you know. We got to make a living, so we'll go to the buy side and we will say, hey, we know how these guys think, and we'll cut good deals for you. That, that's the source of this predatory behavior is because they kind of know, you know, what the pinch points are. But I, I wanted to point out that they're maybe light at the end of the tunnel because the situation that's now happening with pharma is, as Tim mentioned, they are wholesale closing down campuses. I mean, Sandoz, New Jersey, you know, yeah. Sandoz, Novartis is a New Jersey campus, closed, shuttered, whole hillside of buildings. And Roche as well. And Roche as well. So they've decimated their internal research for very good reason because it was not productive. And because of the predatory practices toward the biotech industry, um, they, so number one, there's not a phase two asset where the bucket of spit that's available today. And so the pharma companies, you know, that used to be their mantra, you know, don't bother us until you have phase two data. Well, the, the, there's, there's no assets that have data at phase two that's worth looking at because they've all been picked over like filing's basement. So basically they're saying we got a real problem because we have now, you know, we've driven biotechs out of business. The venture capital backers have, because of the returns were so poor, they've been driven out of business. We have no source of, you know, dis discovery stage products. And the only alternative, if, you know, the last you know, surviving venture capitalist in biotech dies, we'll have to go back and recreate everything that was a failure on our end, you know, internal research. So what's happening, because Avalon is in discussions with five major pharmaceutical companies, where we have said, you know, game over the old way it was done. So you have to put up basically 90% of the money, you know, in advance, we'll put up, and I'm, I'm talking, say, $50 million, and maybe we'll put up two to five, and we will do what we always did, which was that we will, you know, find great technologies out of academia. We will put together the world-class advisory board. We will hire the management. We will manage the thing. We will manage the cap table. So we incentivize people. Uh, and but you know, you're going to be the ultimate beneficiary of this. And so you can take us out at any point, and you can either, you know, it's a three x. It's a 5x, a 10x, or 20x, depending on when that is, so we can get venture returns. Uh, but, you know, the, the bulk of the expenditure and the risk is on you. And they are lining up. I can tell you that. So yeah, I, um, I would parallel that. Our yeah. fund, our so there's, so there's the a new silver lining then. So there's a silver lining. That's the, yeah. that's the solution to our problem. And, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm very encouraged by that.
Yeah, because we have we're out raising a new fund, and our two lead limited partners are both pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, right. you know, kind of type thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, well, that that's okay. That's it's good. And, to, it, and it's an interesting thing in business. I mean, I, I I think about when when I was in business school, you know, and if you'd sat around forty years ago and said, "What would your ideal job be?" You know, someone would have said, "I hope someday to be the CEO of Kodak." Or the president of Pan Am, or something like that. You know, and you know, we tend to look into the look at the current companies and think, oh, the, those will never disappear. But they do. Can you imagine what it must feel like to be at Kodak today and see the train leave the station, and you're sitting there with your Dectol black and white film developer processing plant, saying, what are we going to do tomorrow? I mean, you know, so that there there is disruption, and sometimes it takes a while to work. Through, but at least we have a, a, a president who's so enthusiastic about helping business. And he's going to tax us more. Um, right. <laughs> Let's, uh, we're going to move into the future for a few minutes, and then we'll take questions from the audience. You've already touched on the future with that very optimistic prediction there, uh, um, uh, Kevin. But um, uh, what about the venture capital industry itself? I mean, I was just reading uh, and preparing uh, for this event that uh, I was came, came across something that Paul Gompers wrote a while back that he said the venture capitalists are in the business of funding innovation, but remarkably little, remarkably little innovation has taken place in the venture capital industry itself. Is this an opportunity for venture capital for us, to, the life science venture capital, then to reinvent ourselves? You, to do things differently, so that we can take, so that we can still be productive in the future. You did talk about how you could do association uh, partnerships with pharma. Well, Anything I mean, I, I think what Tim said. So the fifth, we just closed on the tenth Avalon fund. The fifth Avalon fund, with every you know one through four and six through ten have been pan technology, but the fifth fund was was basically biotech only, mainly because Sandoz now you know Novartis at the time made us an offer we couldn't refuse, where. You know, they put up all the money and we got a 50% carry. Uh, and that turned out to be an 11x fund. So it was one of the more successful Avalon funds. And it was probably an example of the most successful collaboration between pharma and venture capital. So where you actually get, you know, real live venture capitalists making the investment decisions and managing the investments, not doing it internally. Uh, and not having some sort of strange relationship where you get a bunch of venture capitalists like MPM and J&J, &J, you know, having a dog and pony show every six months for companies that have sort of wandered over the, uh, the transom. So um, I, I think that was a great model at the time. To show you how boneheaded pharma is, so after the completion of that, that very successful fund, Avalon 5, um, and we... It was so successful that we retired, you know, for uh, me only for two weeks because I went crazy. But uh, anyway, so um, uh, after that, Novartis decided, well, they were going to do it by themselves. So they put a guy in San Diego. And you would have thought that he would have called one of the partners at Avalon and said, you know, I'm here, you know, I got sent from the home office in Basel. These are the people who kept calling us up and they were saying, uh, what do we do with all these share certificates you're sending us? <laughs> right. so, so they put a guy locally here and not one, I won't say his name, not once did he ever call and say, well, what's the magic sauce? How'd you guys do this? Can we have lunch? Nothing. 
Anyway, so the, the, the arrogance of pharma, but now they're not arrogant anymore. So I think things are starting to come around. So maybe it's like Tim is suggesting, you, you get limited partners who are pharmaceutical companies because you do really need that hands-off process. Right. Any other ideas? I have one of my own to throw forward, but any ideas, Jim, of how we can reinvent ourselves? Well, I, I, I mean, I... I uh, or maybe you've already reinvented uh, <laughs> I think we do with what we do. Yeah. Uh, do we do it with a lot of money, or do it do it more limited resources and be effective? I think we, we will. I don't think it's a reinvention per se of the fund structures or the like. It's it's basically, I think, t reacting tactically to the situation. As and I call it a tactical reaction to your Sandoz opportunity, if you would. Um, we have a big problem with the demise, if you would, of about two thirds of our brethren in this business with financing companies that are in domain five and six, okay, not domain eight. Okay, so we have a relationship with the Russians to kind of come in, and some of you yeah. know about those things, and we're, it's, uh, it's working pretty well. It's pretty complicated, but it's, uh, it's working pretty well. We've started to fund some, and uh, they're in there matching our uh, syndicates with, uh, with capital to, mm -hmm. to go forward. You're aware of the, some of those, yeah, I, uh, am, I know. And, and, and uh, but, uh, but the point is, that's a tactical reaction to a situation that we all find mm -hmm. ourselves yeah. in. And I, uh, Paul Gompers aside, I mean, that's the best I can do. Okay. And that's a good segue into what I was going to say, which is in my travels around the world, I've noticed uh, in some of the emerging countries, whether it's China or Brazil, we see a much more active government involvement in funding venture capital firms. We don't see that in the United States. Should we, should we be encouraging our politicians to get involved in funding <laughs> venture capital? Sure. Well, that was already tried, the SBIC. Well, not through SBIC, but actually be a limited partner in your fund. I, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm a Democrat, and I don't think that's a good Obama idea. Obama bailed out the auto industry, and, and the government became a partner in the automobile companies. I mean, a shareholder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that was solving a, a problem were, of an existing we industry have a and so forth. Saving jobs. But don't we have a problem yeah. mm -hmm. in terms of uh, funding innovation? Yeah. Innovation depends on the venture capital industry. They've got the rhetoric down pat, but they don't have the activity down pat. Okay? And... and, and, and you know, yeah, believe I, me, they're a long way from that, and it's it, it's because basically you have an essential process that's going on there uh, that, that politically doesn't permit it. Well, I, I think also this, and I hope I don't offend. Well, yeah, you're not. Won't be <laughs> you might be offended. But if you look around at people who are in venture capital and the entrepreneurs in the companies, they're not all easy to understand people that would pass every due diligence test and say, oh gosh, this guy really would be good. I mean, I think some of us, that's why I'm leaving Jim out here, uh, some of us are doing what we're doing because we couldn't get jobs anyplace else. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, I mean, I'm going to use true. you as an example. <laughs> but, I mean, so, there's, so there is a little bit of a... Um, I don't know. I mean, like people have also asked me. I mean, not often, but you know, what do you, what did you use as due diligence? And my due diligence was, if I have to spend a lot of time with this person, will I be happy? <laughs> um, based on what this person has done in the past, do I think there's some chance they'll make it work? Uh, do I think we can raise enough money to get this done? And if we do, would there be a market for it? And if that's it, I go, okay, well, that looks good to me. Yeah. And 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 this idea of these studies and due diligence and what is there, you know, you, you just can't, you can't So, well, of course, the most innovative 
stuff companies be, if it were, are, if are it, looking over the horizon. Yeah, no one, no one could do a market study. Good idea. Right. They'd already right. have done it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Why don't we open the discussion to the audience? I think it's important to do that. I hope that you and the audience might have a few questions. Yeah, can I just have one little thing sure. as I look over my shirt? Who do you see? We, oh, we're people. having trouble financing <laughs> pitches. We and somebody invited this very astute guy in San Diego named Peter Price to the board meeting, and after about a half hour, he kind of went, "Wait a minute, am I here? Because you expect me to finance this?" <laughs> did he write it? Did he? And, we, and, and I don't want to tell him what he owes me, but we we were so embarrassed, we gave him a thousand stock options at a penny a share, and apologized for bringing him. <laughs> what did you do with that money, Peter? <laughs> okay, that's how we're talking about. Okay. He dropped out of school. <laughs> question. That was true, man. That story is true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have a question. Could we have a, do we have a roving mic of some kind? <laughs> or two. Please uh, don't hesitate to ask your questions. You will never have this opportunity again, probably, in your lifetime. God, what do we have? A death panel here or something? <laughs> <laughs> You're about to. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you. Another, can I tell you one other thing that that this reminds me of? As you work your way up in venture capital, when you're just starting and you get Jim Blair to invest in one of your companies, and he's kind enough to lend you his ski home in Deer Valley, when the phone rings, don't let the other couple you brought answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that, right? <laughs> All right. We have a question back there. I, and please identify yourself. Uh, Cleantis Anthopoulos, hi, Edward. Okay. Um, their indications are about 40 to 50 percent of life sciences venture capital firms are going to go out of business, and we're experiencing that, particularly in San Diego. The question to the panel is the following Was it too much supply of, of money, too few ideas, as the industry now in the fourth decade being maturing, too many bad people couldn't find jobs elsewhere, became VCs? putting bad money into bad ideas? Or is there a fundamental problem with the returns that we all discussed before? Yes. Yes, so all, all of the above? <laughs> well, you, I mean, what, what happened uh, in the, I think it was the, late, it was probably the early 90s, when venture capital became an official ERISA asset class. Uh, because, and it's like Gresham's Law, right? The bad money drives out the good. So enormous sums of money came into the venture capital business, you know, for all sectors, tech, biotech, whatever. And uh, then the bar for establishing quality of deal uh, got lowered. Uh, and because so much money had come in, all of these unqualified people were getting battlefield promotions to be venture capitalists. And, uh, you know, it created what you might expect. Uh, there were lots of bad deals that were financed. A lot of money was lost. And it, you know, uh, the funny thing about venture capital is, I like to say, it's a, it's a high barrier to entry industry. But it's also a high barrier to exit. <laughs> so, I mean, you find people that you thought, oh, my god. They're, they're still in this business after all these failures and all these people they pissed off and everything, and they turn up somewhere else because they can walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, but that, you know, that's starting to get really wrung out now because of the you know, poor returns that finally, after a long period of time, the institutional investors have said, you know, we're done. I mean, Harvard Management Company, which 
thank God, is still one of our largest limited partners. They're not investing in healthcare at all. Period. Trying to sell. There's a big catch. No, no, there's uh, you know there's no Facebooks. There's no tweet. You know the uh, Twitters. There's and and this is the question. And as we go out to raise capital from the general uh, sources of supply, they they where you know why is it you guys don't have any uh, you know Twitters? Why don't you know no yeah. Facebook? You're talking about life science in exactly. general, not right. not domain per se or you guys, but it. Uh, and it's that's not the nature of the beast. I mean, the nature of the beast is uh, most of these funds that that have done well, uh, essentially, are by anybody's standards good returns. But mm -hmm. they're just not, and they're and they're fairly steady. They just take a lot longer to you know get there. And so there's a the sense of 2008 was a crisis because the, the primary sources were the Harvards and and the mm -hmm. Princetons and the Stanfords and whatever it is. They're all shrinking their appetite for this asset class, but they were the most stable source of LPs. And so uh, their, their argument is, is that why should I take an illiquidity situation here on for, you know, I'm, and these guys were putting 20% of their endowments into the asset class, and it was untouchable. I mean, they were going out and borrowing money so that they could fund operations in their schools. At the same time, they were, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, had this terrific uh, portfolio gains from their venture portfolio. Well, do you think there's any possibility, uh, Jim, that the younger generation at Domain, uh, you've got a lot of young people there, might follow this young man's lead and say, uh, hey, we'll bring in some uh, high-tech uh, VCs uh, from a yeah. companies like AOL and others and yeah, yeah. start doing these other things and having a general fund rather than a life science fund. So the, I, the question is, should we all be moving to general funds? By bringing well, we, we were the first uh, uh, focused fund, mm -hmm. okay, so uh, we'll probably be the last to be unfocused. My comment would be, um, we've invested companies like uh, uh, Neuropace up in the Bay Area about uh, you know 10 years ago or thereabouts, and, and that was Wall Street Journal's pick as the top entrepreneurial company. I don't know why it's entrepreneurial in 2012. And it wasn't for the last ten years, but at any rate, uh, you know, yeah. it, was, it was picked as their as their number one pick. That is a true marriage of electronic technology and a, uh, a medical device need because it's a, 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 a neurostimulator that reacts to signals from the brain that you're about to get an epileptic seizure. So instead of just constantly hitting the vagal nerve with uh, electrical pulses, this thing is actually adaptive and reacting to it, and it's uh, there's a big difference in the clinical results from all that. But the, of that, uh, uh, so, so we're drawing on yeah. the tech sector in a very right. big and important way. Speaking of that, you know, uh, San Diego is really big in the wireless area. Qualcomm has their own venture fund, wireless venture fund, uh, wireless health venture fund. Would, will all three of your funds do a deal with Qualcomm and wireless health if you had the opportunity and if it was the right deal? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, you would, yes. I, I uh, was the founder of a company called, well, founding investor of a company called Sotera Wireless, mm -hmm. which is a mobile vital signs monitoring company that's uh, hopefully on its, we have three FDA approvals to go through and we're submitting our uh, 510K for the last one, hopefully at the end of this week. And Qualcomm's an investor. Oh, good. So you're answering that. But it's, but it's, again, it's an odd, my, my investors in Sotera are Qualcomm, Intel, the West Wireless right. Foundation, and Cerner, the 
yeah, data yeah. processing. I don't have any other venture capitalist in the company. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? Would, would Avalon well, do well, sure. I mean, we just had a spectacular public offering of Ocera, uh, okay. which is basically a, has a Star Trek communicator and it basically has completely penetrated the hospital vertical, uh, as well as you know the U.S. Senate, Navy ships, things like that. But what um, is it communicating? Just they can communicate across Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. Uh, voice. It's only you know basically Wi-Fi is a asynchronous yeah. network for data, but they were able to very cleverly write software so it could be used for voice. So um, anyway, it's done. Do you think it'll be a, well. a major growth area for this area, for the San Diego? San Diego I mean, it it, it could be. I mean, my partner Steve Tomlin. People ask, okay, well, so you've got wireless here and healthcare, and what about the intersection? He says. Yeah, he, he said, you know, if it happens by coincidence, we're interested, but we yeah. do not specifically look for, you know, deals that, you know, in fact, yeah. are hybrids okay. of the two. Let's see if there are any other questions. Uh, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll get to you, Knox. Uh, 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 it's been great and fun to hear some of the success stories, but in your industry, you also have a lot of failures. Can you identify even now what some of the key factors, characteristics are that you Focused on to try to figure out is this going to be a failure and cut the losses in the process. I can't remember any failures. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, we like to say it's management, and uh, and and frequently it is. Uh, but uh, you know, that's just a you know uh, a scapegoat for our stupidity, if you would, in doing these things. But I think. Uh, uh, we frequently invested in things that were ideas kind of a little bit ahead of their time and, and uh, you know, generally speaking, you didn't get the market uptake, got the product developed on a timely basis and it worked and did what it was supposed to do. Uh, or you ran afoul of the FDA or a variety of things that, uh, that, that took place that, that generally were the occasion for that. Now the financing risk uh, is probably the most significant reason for failure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is well, bizarre. And I, th I think, though, that, that it's important. I mean, you just can't take an idea and just go. You have to be able to make mid-course corrections. And I, Jim and I were both involved in Amelin Pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. and th that originated with a discovery by an endocrinologist PhD on a protein coming from the same cells that make insulin that had a stabilizing effect in, in, on type 1 diabetics. But along the way, uh, we learned that uh, Gila monsters ate twice a year and maintained an even glucose level. So we ended up making, and Jim, you'll correct me if I'm wrong technically, or synthetic Gila monster saliva. Correct. And that became the blockbuster drug. Yeah. You know, and I don't remember that being in the business plan. When we <laughs> no, no, no. We, when we looked at it at the board level, we understood Gila monster spit, but uh, the uh, Lily calls it a GLP-1 inhibitor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's, there's some questions in the back. It's hard for me to see who you are, unfortunately, with the lights glaring on me. But um, after, after well, can you identify yourself? Kevin, you Let's voted say, we're going to get that one to Kevin. Answer. When, when, sure. And, you, and he didn't even ask about the uh, carried interest. 
Yeah, uh, tax legislation. He's just talking about capital gains in no. general. What about if you converted all of our carried interest to ordinary income? Yeah, I, I can't I, believe. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> if you just look historically, I mean, the these are the Bush tax cuts, right? So they came in after sometime after the year two thousand. So during the Clinton era, which had an enormous, you know, uptick in yeah. technology investments and so forth, and people got rich then, just as they do at all times. Um, I'm not sure the difference between 15% and 28% uh, is, you know, all that significant, uh, frankly. Uh, I think there is, um, I mean, there's absolutely an argument you made that you have to balance the budget and the money has to come from somewhere. So, uh, I, and for, for example, I, I see utterly no justification for a 15% tax rate on dividends from, you know, General Motors or Boeing or Caterpillar, whatever. I mean, why? No one is taking a risk really doing that, investing in an established blue chip company and, and you know, just clipping coupons. Uh, you know, I think things ought to be skewed toward people who are taking serious risk. And maybe uh, I'd be enormously in favor of this if you've had your money in the ground for five years in a small, you know, high tech company uh, and you get a return on that. There, maybe there should be no capital gains on that. Uh, and certainly have it gradated over the length of time that you've had the money at risk. Um, I, I, I mean, what about, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what your What about carried interest? Yeah, I, I, and, I and think ordinary, and, yeah, and my, my personal view, income. I'm not going to get out on a picket line because it affects me adversely, but there is no rational justification why uh, venture capital or private equity firms should get a tax break on carried interest because they haven't taken the personal risk. They get a management fee. We don't have enough time. Because <laughs> <laughs> I disagreed with And the design. founders of the company that get stock at a penny a share, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Because they put a penny in. So the difference is a penny. That's what you're saying. The difference between getting ordinary income or capital gains tax is a cent. Well, but they, they, have, they have taken, first of all, the venture capitalists or are, spread, are, are spreading their risk okay. over a whole This will be another uh, uh, This will be over <laughs> drinks. We're not going to discuss this over here, but... Uh, I, 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 uh, I, I would just add... <laughs> typical I, Republican I, doesn't like what you say, so he shuts the bait off. I, I, I learned I, something new about Kevin. I didn't appreciate you. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I yeah. would add this. I am personally very pleased that the election is over. <laughs> At least we know where we are, yeah. and I think our country is creative and will figure out what to do. I personally would, you know, the tax rates and all that's fine, and, you know, and it moves money, and if you tax something, there's less of it usually. But I would like to see a stop on the part of our president picking on business. I mean, that you didn't build this crap. I just thought it was awful, awful, and I hope he'll stop. Okay. We're going to get away from politics. Yes, Heather. Are we done? No, I Oh, you have a question. Okay, I thought that was uh, weird. Yes, Heather. This is a great comment or discussion maybe for our friends at Nectar or Biocon or Take Up as you look at where things are going. But I want to make sure that I'm gleaning as much from you in the learning environment. How, do you, how would you take the, the items that you might have realized you needed in terms of skills or maybe skills you picked up early in your career from this industry that really was this inception? What are those, those skills do you think it's critical that a, an innovator or entrepreneur still needs today? What, what are the things that are carrying through time and space and, and really still affect the 
coping, fear coping yeah, fear of failure and coping with the changing environment. Yeah. Because as 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 you know, the Gila monster, you know, venom wasn't in the original business plan. If you, it, oh, the spit. If, not venom. Sorry, the saliva. If you look at any business, and and take you know where it is today. Let's say it's five years after the original business plan was approved and invested in, and you read that original business plan. I, I mean, in ninety-five percent of the cases, it has nothing to do with what they're doing today. Right. And the only reason it gets is because you have clever people who are able to, you know, roll with the punches and change the strategy and raise money to do that, and you know, hire around that and so forth. So it takes an enormous amount of cleverness and ability to cope uh, to be a successful entrepreneur. I think it requires those skills to be a venture capitalist. Yeah, and I, I always remember. At Hybertech, we had like the top three people from DuPont come by and see us one time and said, you know, you're spending $10 million on R&D and we're spending $2 billion and you're getting more out of yours than we are of ours. What's the reason? I, I responded with, well, at DuPont, if you're working on a project and it fails, you get reassigned. If we're working on a project and fail, we go home. <laughs> Very good. Do we have more time for any more questions, Heather or Brian? Um, okay, Dick? Well, I, if I can, I mean, when I was the chief financial officer at Hybertech, and we positioned the company right over here so that the people left the university could drive by it and their neighbors wouldn't know they'd sold out to the for-profit sector. And, you know, and we would do things like give Iver stock options. And, and I appeared several times in front of ethics committees at UCSD as to whether this was the right thing to be doing because the university at that time, if I'm right, was sort of used to taking inventions, putting it in a catalog, selling the entire catalog to Johnson & Johnson so that no one else would be able to do anything with that technology to, to compete with the products they already had. So we worked our way through it, and then when Hybertech was sold, the university just did a 180 and thought, man, this is a neat deal. we got to do more of this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's where, you know, where the Connect and the, uh, the course I taught and called How to Start a High-Tech Company came from. So the university completely changed. But you mentioned Benno Schmidt Jr. Um, I went to uh, Yale one time uh, as a graduate saying, you know, why don't we do more what UCSD has done and try and encourage technology and outlines. And his, and his father was a venture capitalist. He said, no way, we're not going to compete with Stanford and MIT. That's just not in our bones. So we changed to the next president. I went and pitched again. And he got on a plane, came out here, and sat down with the late Bill Otterson. And they were explaining all the policies we'd worked out and all this kind of stuff. And, and the president of Yale said, well, can you just give me a copy of it? If you can give it to me electronically, we'll just change the name from UCSD to Yale and do it. <laughs> and, and the people that know Bill Otterson would, would like, I think, enjoy this. And, and, and so we get to the end of the meeting. And, and Otterson says to Rick Levin, he says, uh, and what again is your position at Yale? And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm the president of Yale. And Bill goes, oh my God, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think, and, and, and from that, we went on, and uh, Bill Otterson and I one time testified in front of the Board of Regents as to why each campus needed its own licensing and patent office. and. So the universities have gotten with it, and Yale now has that, you know, because of the UCSD. And uh, 
I, it's become uh, more of an acceptable modus operandi because I would think it would be beneficial in attracting faculty as well as creating income. I mean, like when we were involved in starting Aurora Biosciences, they were, you know, in the process of rec recruiting that Nobel, future Nobel Prize winner, but he wanted to make sure there was some outlet for his ideas when right. he got here, so we started Aurora Biosciences as a way of recruiting him to the university. Is that a right. fair yeah. statement? Yeah. No, we, we I and mean, then Vertex is our product. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, I mean, you're talking about Roger Chen, but lots of, uh, you know, technology of his we've, we've licensed into companies. We, and we love serial entrepreneurs, whether they're professors or operating people, it's great. Yeah, yeah one, There's one going to be money for that coming yeah. from the government to support universities. Yeah. One, one, I, of the, one of the I things that's going on now today that, uh, that I think is a source of concern, uh, because I think it discourages excellence, just to take a, you know, throw a soundbite out there, uh, and that is the change in the NIH funding policies that basically say, if you have a top researcher in your institution, and you have many of them here, uh, that previously they, their, their grant, their total grant income is now limited to $900,000 a year. And there are a number of your top ones that are probably getting uh, 2.7, you know, just to, just to pick a number out of the hat. I know uh, three or four top researchers that were in the two and a half to $3 million a year of NIH grants, and that's over. And they're really attempting to spread the wealth because there's getting a lot of pressure from their Congressional people come in and pound and sit there and say, "Well, you know, not enough for North Dakota." Okay, we got to, you know, and 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 I I don't want to disparage them because I think they're creative in what they're doing. But the fact of the matter is that if you basically don't have our federal sources of funding financing uh, the best people in the country, the ideas that we've been financing aren't going to happen. Agree to that. Agree to that. Agree to. Um, we have time. How much more time do we have? Someone. One more question. There it is. Hi, uh, Ira. But this Guy. is actually a guy, uh, Zeke, uh, from Mentis. But um, one of the things I've noticed in the last 30 years, watching San Diego become the third largest biotech cluster in the United States, is several things that came out of this, but I need to have your insight on a problem. The top science seems to be clustered in clusters. It grows that way because the best are with the best. The research is with the best the best people, as you said, the best funding, the best infrastructure. Why San Diego being the third best biotech cluster, life science cluster, and very candidly, a lot of other things, have we developed a reputation for developing companies to sell and having precious few, and we know all of them, that have made it to the big leagues? You know, we only have like three Fortune 500 companies in the city. Why is that, and why, how, what can we do to maybe allow companies to mature here? Yeah, good question. Because on the tech side, that's also true, because the last great technology company developed in San Diego was 1985, and that was Qualcomm. Whereas we go to the Bay Area, they're happening all the time. So <clears throat> I'd love to figure that out. And unfortunately, we invest all over the country, and a lot in the Bay Area, in Boston, New York, and so forth. But you may love to you know, stay at home with the fine weather and so forth here. Well, it's not getting any better because we're building companies today to sell, unfortunately, because there's no IPO market to speak of. I mean, it might be there's yeah. some rumblings that are coming back here, but we are catering to the pharmaceutical industry. If, it was, if the pharmaceutical industry had a, a vibrant R&D program and didn't need us, we would really be in bad shape. But because they don't, they depend on, uh, the, uh, they depend on the venture capital-backed companies 
they are the R&D engine for the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think part of it might be that, you know, the personalities of the people who start these companies are not necessarily the same people that can carry it through right. to be a large organization. And I mean, just like Pixis, when people said, we'll give you a billion dollars for it, all the people went, hell yeah. And you know, yeah. that's about, I'm gonna, you know, let's yeah, get I, out of I, here. And, I, I would say the biggest difference, just to your point, the biggest difference I have seen in the entrepreneurial community of 30 years ago and today is that 30 years ago, if you talked about selling the company, you got a lot of pushback from the entrepreneurial team. And today, the drive to sell is coming from the entrepreneurial team. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Okay, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, I just want to thank everybody here. I want to thank the panelists. Uh, it's been really, I thought, quite illuminating. I think that um, you know this industry, the life, the, the the life science industry in San Diego, has depended for its success on access to venture capital. We had plenty of access to venture capital over the years. This is drying up. I think Cleanthus mentioned correctly, the number of life science venture capital firms has shrunk in half, and it's getting worse. And uh, but, so let's hope that Kevin's prediction that the pharmaceutical companies will actually advance us money and be our partners is actually going to be correct, and we can still stay in business as a, as an industry to support life sciences, but it is a, we are reaching a critical uh, time in history of this of life science venture capital. But there, Kevin says there are sing, there's a silver lining, uh, we'll accept that and hope that there is. Thank you very much for Thank being you. here. And uh, this. Please join us for a reception out in the lobby.